Hi, Stella. How's it going, Sasha? It's going well. We we had a return guest on today. We actually promised our listeners that she'd be back in a few weeks, but it was only 11 months, but that's okay. It was only 11 months, but actually it turns out it was really good to get that time because Maggie Goldsmith's daughter has desisted and mm-hmm. Maggie gives us a good analysis of a, a kind of a longer perspective, the wider lens, if you will on uh, desistance and watching it and what the she, she kind of had some really profound things to say about the parent's journey of the child yeah. w- when they're desisting and also about how the, the the kid themselves experienced desistance yeah i mean we we talked about basically maggie thinks that all of this gender stuff is a communication to the parents asking them to do something differently it's Sometimes individuation and differentiation, well, she says all the time, but it's really a call to parents to kind of look at their own dynamics and make a change. And it reminded me a lot of when we talked to um, Stoic Mom, for example, that her daughter was kind of calling her to behave in a new way. And Maggie also brought in kind of the psychoanalytic perspective and object relations theory. So for any therapist listening, this might be really interesting. And how that helps us understand, like, what is the child really asking from the parent? Yeah, because Maggie's a psychologist, so she brings a lot, and she's very well read, so she brings a lot to the table, because it's not only the parent's perspective, but it's also the psychologist's perspective, having worked with kids who've desisted, and having a kid who has desisted. So it's, it, there's an awful lot in Maggie, as well as that, as, a, as just a parent, not a parent of a gender kid, but as a parent, I did feel seen in the middle of it. I did feel, I was biting my lip a few times during this interview going, God, we really do want our kids not to have any troubles. And we feel mm. so disturbed when they do, when actually it's the human condition. Our kids are going to have troubles. And yeah. so uh, it, it was very good for me as a parent listening to Maggie. It was, it was good for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And um, one of the things that we wanted to do is encourage listeners, if you're here, whether you're on YouTube or you're listening through the podcast, please take a look at the conversations happening on our YouTube channel. It's kind of amazing how yeah. many engaging fascinating discussions are happening there so please like and subscribe go check out our youtube even if you prefer usually to listen while you're walking or doing dishes or whatever just to see the conversations happening there and i guess before we dive in i'll just kind of read a little bit more about um dr maggie goldsmith and i do want to remind our listeners as well to you know if you want to support our work do sign up to our patreon because we we put in bonus content there and we really we we try to do our best to get the word out there and we'd appreciate any support that people want to give yeah we we asked maggie about how she actually addresses gender in real life Um, and it was really interesting to hear her answer she had a lot of practical wisdom around this because she's a clinician she's in a very kind of affirmative landscape so if you're interested in that please check out our listener exclusives in patreon and a bit more about Dr. Goldsmith. She's the author of The Pitt Essay, To My Daughter's Therapist, You Were Wrong, which was the first essay from the Pitt Substack to go viral, and it put Pitt on the map. 
It can be found in a recently published book, which I have right here, that includes 75 essays by parents who have gender-questioning children. And since our first episode together, which was episode 85, she's been actually quite busy with a caseload full of kids and families impacted by gender dysphoria. So Dr. Maggie's approach to this work is grounded, as we said, in object relations theory and supported by an understanding of human development through the life course. And um, this places the family and the parent-child relationship in a position of primary importance in her work as they manage to repair the inevitable ruptures of adolescence. So with that, we hope you enjoy our conversation, our second conversation with Dr. Maggie Goldsmith. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Welcome back, Maggie. We're glad to have you again 11 months later. Hey, thanks for inviting me back. Looking forward to this. Yeah, us too. It's you know, great. La- the, the the last time was, was such a it was a brilliant conversation, and I think an awful lot of parents, especially, were really really taken with your story. It, it yeah. was really 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 moving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when when we were kind of ending our conversation last time, you made this really important point, which is when kids start to question their gender, they often do so with a big bang. There's a big announcement. There's this very in your face kind of behavior. But then if they're desisting, you don't have a formal announcement. There's not a lot of clarity. It just kind of shifts and flexibility comes in. But parents are often very unsure of what this means. So you were kind of at the beginning of what seemed like your daughter's desistance last time we talked. So can you tell us a little bit about what's happened since with her? So since coming back from being abroad for four months together, she um, she decided to go to university for a semester. She went for a semester and found that it wasn't the right place for her because it was very much a party school and she's not a party kid. But she got through for a semester and she did brilliantly academically and the professors all loved her because she's smart and she's, you know, she's very creative. Um, But she decided that she's going to withdraw after a semester and come back home and she's going to reapply to schools. Well, one thing that happened, and I'm sure the two of you know this, is that very often when there's gender dysphoria or there's a gender issue, there's other things underneath it. And very often with girls, what's underneath it is potentially an eating disorder. So when the dysphoria when the gender when the gender is issue dissipated immediately what came right up was the eating disorder Whoa. and this is what happened during those that first semester of university so for her health she needed to come back home and really deal with the <clears throat> the eating disorder she is now um fully weight restored she is um i think eating disorders go into remission i don't think that eating disorders are ever 
like cured, mm. you know. So I would say that her eating disorder is very much in remission right now. She's gone back to university, a different college. She's just starting this week. And, you know, she has a lovely boyfriend who just, hey. you know, they just really love each other. And they're so sweet. And um, he's so supportive. And she's so loving. And, you know, I, I feel like that's, you know, I mean, it feels like happily ever after in a way. It's like, you know, it's so, it sounds like such a, like a trope. And then she got this yeah. boyfriend and everything <laughs> was fine. And, and I don't think that's the what The feminists I'm... will be throwing tomatoes out there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but the thing is, it's like, it Maybe feels like right. she's integrated so many different parts of herself. And the thing is, it's like, you know, she does not want to talk about the gender stuff at all. You know, like yeah. I'll bring up ever so slightly and she's like, I don't care. I don't care. The most I can get from her is it was a very dark time in my life. Wow. And can I ask you, do you think, uh, is she, because it, it kind of gives a bit of an insight into the early disaster because she's, you know, she's, you know, a year in. Yeah. Do you think she uh, is ashamed of it or is she embarrassed or is it... I think that's definitely yeah. part of it. I think part of it is that she's embarrassed. Um, part of it is also that I think she recognized like how hurtful it was and how hurtful she was at the time. You know, because during yeah. the whole um, the the whole gender thing. I mean, this is you know, Stella. I think you've talked about like these kids, like these girls are very um, they're very pleasant. They're very agreeable all their yeah. lives and they're very attached to their mom or their primary yeah, caregiver and this is like really the first time that she really let me have it mm -hmm. you know that she really said no it's not going to be i'm not going to be who you want me to be i don't want to be yours anymore um that's what you she know said. um yeah. That's what she said. Remember, we said that at the la yeah. at the end of the last. That was yeah. that was her statement. I don't want to be yours anymore, mm -hmm. and um, it was a profound thing. You know, this was she needed to separate, and she didn't know how. And mm -hmm. I think this is the this is the case with every single kid who is going through this. Is they need to separate. Something has been thwarted about the developmental course. And then they, you know, this is so much in the culture, this gender thing is so much in the culture and it's so prominent and it's so much part of the language that this is, it's, it's available and that's where they go. This wow. is how they choose to almost, it's, it's almost like a, an, a it, it aborts the separation, right? Like you can't really separate, you know, because it makes your parents so panicked that they're, holding on to you even mm. harder, you know? So, yeah. so yeah. So I think, yeah. I mean, I often say that <clears throat> this seems like a conflict around the desire to separate because yeah. at one level, like if a parent goes along with it, then all of a sudden your child is almost in an infantile state where they're going to become, you know, patient and you're going to have to take care of them after surgery. And they're very much, in that kind of being nurtured place and yet they're also declaring somehow i'm not who you thought i was i'm this i'm this person who can make adult decisions like it's it's an interesting 
way that the subconscious might be saying, I'm actually scared to become an adult. I need to be babied. I need to be cared for. And I need you to kind of go on this journey with me. It's also reflective of the kind of classic codependent relationship where it's a push and a pull, where I'm dependent on you and I'm furious I'm dependent on you and I become become contemptuous of you to show my my kind of my my powerless need to try and be independent and I'm being mm-hmm. thwarted and I'm not able to do it and they can it, it it's it's really well it's um like I know toddlerhood isn't it yeah it's, it's like it's, really it's, a second toddlerhood where you know I'm yeah. I'm trying to I, I don't know how to do this but I'm I'm pissed that I can't and that somehow furious. I feel like you're holding me back yeah, you know, if you're holding me back. And if you I, if you look at the context of, of the you know this this cohort of kids, you know the context in which they're trying to separate, there's a lot of things that are different. People talk about like you know the the smartphone, for example, is a big thing people talk about, and then the pandemic. You know, I mean, both of those things have done their part, I think, to thwart the natural separation process because. Rather than sort of going out into the world and expanding and, and sort of making new friends and uh, seeing the world, I mean, what happened? It's like their, their lives have constricted into this screen, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what's behind that screen is like so much that it, it sort of supplants, supplants the human connections in a way. You know, it's the community. Before you had the extended family and your child ran across the street or, or you know, went to auntie's house. But now we don't have that anymore. We have, you know, we have uh, YouTube and we have all of these things that sort of and, take the place and of... the LGBT community. I mean, it's interesting right. that that's called a community. There's actually no no connection, no deep knowing, no actual helping one another in like, you know, real yeah. times of need. Like it's it's an interesting use of the term community. Right. You're so right, because we grew up with the word community. It was a parochial, small, yes. making cups of tea and baking buns for each other. Community was the person across the road. So far from an online virtual kind of scene, it, it couldn't be a more unusual and, use of the word community. And those communities, like, let's say, like, you know, everything has its benefits and its, you know, sort of de- detractions about it. Um, when you have a community that's like close knit and you're making tea and baking buns for each other, you also have obligations toward those people. You know, you have to yeah. appear a certain way. You have to like speak a certain way. And it's almost as if that's not the case in these online communities when it very much is. You are required mm-hmm. to behave a certain mm-hmm. way and you are required. So it's really the same thing, right? You still, you know, like when you go to the lady across the street who's making tea and baking buns, you have to call her auntie, right? Mm-hmm. You have to like, mm-hmm. you can't just say, hey, you know, Sasha, I'm here for my <laughs> <What tea>. up, <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. You can't say that. So there, and, and you know, you have to like, you know, and when you go visit people, you have to dress a certain way and you have to behave a certain like. So there are there are requirements when you're in a community. There's this sense that when you're in this other community, you're free from all of that, but it's not true. This it, when it, community quotes right that you still have to behave a certain way and act a certain. You still have to like go according to the code. Yeah. So it's interesting. Could, it really has. Could, 
could I ask you something slightly different, but I don't want to lose the, the idea because I think it's something that's particularly difficult for a lot of parents, which is the parent's experience of desistance, mm-hmm. as in the child is yeah. desisting. And I, I have had so many, and it's, it's lovely that you have too, Sasha, so many communications about parents who are desisting and how they're finding it or how they have found it. And it's, it feels like it's, it's very difficult on the parents. They can feel very yeah. emotional. They yeah. can feel exhausted, tense, tired, frightened. Landmines are everywhere. And also, is it desistance? I don't know if it's desistance. That can continue for a long time. There's an awful lot of two steps forward, one step backwards. So mm-hmm. how was your experience, as opposed to your kids' experience of desistance, your experience of your kids' desistance? I can tell you that, like, you know, during the whole time when she was, you know, sort of fully entrenched, I always felt myself saying, I just want her to be out of this, you know, like, I will be so happy and I will just be so relieved and like, you know, I I, I swear I'll throw a party, (laughs) you know, like, I'll be so happy, I'm going to like send fireworks and like, when it was over, I was so angry with her. Mm. I was so angry with her and I was like, why would you do this to yourself? And why would you do this to me? And to us, our family. Why would you do this? Why would you sabotage yourself so badly? You know, and like in, in that question already was the answer was that she needed me to change somehow. She needed me to change. She needed the relationship to change. She needed me almost to lower my expectations of her in a way. She needed me to let her be herself and not the better version of me. Not the sort of, not the better version who has had all the obstacles removed from. So like, you know, I, I come from an immigrant family and I, you know, I, there were many obstacles in front of me in sort of getting to where I am in life, you know, and in my mind, it was like, okay, we've done that already. We're not going to do that again. I'm going to remove all those obstacles, you know, so I'm going to be the mom who just just opens the world for you and opens the world for you and sort of like makes it easy for you to access things and to have things and to, but like in so doing that, I think that there were a lot of things that I missed, you know, that, and that put a huge burden on her, a huge set of expectations on her that she did not know how to get, get the heck out of. Can, can I come in? Um, because I think you've hit upon a really, really common challenge for parents that we, we have a natural and noble desire to want our children to have a better life than we had and mm-hmm. to have learned from the things that are hard won, you know, lessons that we can impart easily. So it, it, it's a gorgeous desire. I, I had the very same for my kids. And I'm learning the very same lesson. And I'd say all the world over we are, which is we think, well, I had it hard. Now, I'm given it. You, you, you're having it easier than me. And therefore, you can kind of have all the things that I kind of should have had. <laughs> Be- Do you follow me? Because because yeah. I have. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's like, no, no, they're doing their own thing. <laughs> They like, don't necessarily I want to. you already. What are you doing? <laughs> no, 
yeah, you go and live my life, the one I would have had and could have had had I not had all those obstacles. Go. And they're like, exactly. uh, no, <laughs> I turn exactly. left here and I got to have my own life. And it's, exactly. it's, I think it faces parents, especially teen, parents of teenagers and young adults. It's, and parents have to learn. They go their own way. And it's not necessarily what we the think. The other thing I think way. parents yeah. have to learn. And this, you know, this, I think, leads into sort of like a little bit of the psychodynamic theory and the relational yeah. sort of piece of it and the um you know the is that you know um the mother has to change somehow wow i have to change it's not just that the child is developing it's that something about mom has to change and mom when i say mom i mean the the primary caregiver you know, the, the person who is the main sort of face-to-face, skin-to-skin person as they're growing up. Um, so in my sense, what had to change about me was that the expectation that because I've removed all these obstacles, she's just going to just go out and, you know, just, kind of, just world. you know, kick it yeah. out of the park all the time. Um you know, with other moms, it's other things. Other moms of the sisters have had to also. And this is part of what I try to tell these parents is, you know, they say, well, why can't I just send her these videos of the de- sister or of the detransitioners? Mm-hmm. And why can't I just have her listen to podcasts and, uh, and do all of this? And it's hard for me because I want to say, because that's what you've already all been, you've already been doing all her life. Yeah. You know, you've been giving her information and you've been giving her podcasts like you've been you've been, you know, you've been doing all of that. And if that was what's going to help this child to desist, she already would have. Honestly, she's asking for something else. And you can't skip to that part. You can't skip the part where you have to change. Where so you're you saying, have to, yeah, you're yeah, saying ROGD is is a communication it's almost a request. This yeah. is what I'm saying. It's 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 not just a request. It's a demand. Yeah. It's a demand. It's a demand, it's a demand from something from the mom. From something the from the. Oh, what, what about the fathers? Like, in fairness, I hear what you're saying about the primary caregiver, but the the the. the, the there's an awful lot of mothers in this field. I'd say, Sasha, you fi- find the same on your subscribe star as I find on the Substack. And the, the prominence of the mothers, I remember we did a count of the GDSM, the family meetings and stuff. It was 90, 90 95% mothers. Uh, I know they're the primary carers, but there might be a similar lesson to be learned about the fathers. I don't know what that is, but there could be a corresponding one. So, you know, in 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 my I think I think yes the fathers do come in but I also think the entire family comes in you know it's the entire family system that mm-hmm. comes into it and the fathers being an important part of that family system so for example um you know you both have worked with kids whose parents are in a contentious divorce where one parent is quote unquote affirming and the other parent usually the mom is flipping out going this is this is awful so part of what that kid is demanding is for the parents to get on the same page Mm -hmm. that's Uh, what needs to change in that family yikes so you know so if we can get the parents 
on the same page somehow, then it's more you you have more of the possibility that this child you have more of the conditions under which this child will desist. Yeah. So that's what you're doing. You're you're tweaking the family system. You're not just sort of like saying to the mom, well, this is what you need to do. And you're not, you know, like you, you guys know the kid comes in. How often do you actually talk about gender mm-hmm. when yeah, you're doing real therapy? Rarely ever, rarely I ever. Know. It starts about gender and it like, you know, 20 minutes into the session, I'm so mad at my mom. Mm. She did that thing again. You know, mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. so pissed off at my, my brother or my, you know, why does my brother get this and I don't, you know, why does he get to goof up and I don't get to goof up? I don't get to fail. Yes. You know, you get that, so that much exact of that. stories so, in our book. That, I mean, that, that's yeah. exactly a story yeah. in our book that the brother yeah. gets off easy for, for whatever reason. And so why, why is that so unfair? And it's a subconscious thing that like, well, let me inch towards that. The boyhood is the better thing in this case. Right. Yeah. And and th- there's that, but there's also that, that F you to the mom. Yeah. You know, you, you wanted you or to the parent. Like when I think when I say mother, I mean like in the sort of the M with the apostrophe other after like the other, <laughs> you know, the that, primary that caregiver. Person. Yeah. Yeah, the mother. Yeah. I don't mean the mother per se. I mean just yeah. like sometimes I mean the mother. Sometimes I mean the parent, the parental um, unit, the 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 spousal unit, and sometimes I mean the the entire family, the community as the mother. The mother is the environment. I think it was Winnicott who said the environment mother. You know, mm-hmm. um, the mother is the environment in which the child emerges. The um, whole the context, child. basically, all of right. the, the whole feeding context. into yeah. the child. Feeding, and and because an of the culture word. and and because of the culture we live in, the mother's the mother, the female parent, seems to be the one who is sort of leading all of this, seems to be the main element in this environment. Yeah. She, you know, directs the environment. She sort of tweaks the environment. You know, mothers are very are very burdened, but they're also very powerful, I think. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GetA. GetA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit GetA at GenderExploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. Maybe this is a good place to kind of lead into the psychodynamic approach because you touched on this in our last conversation and you also kind of alluded to the fact that you know what psychodynamic and really good therapists do in sessions 
should be accessible to parents too, just to understand these dynamics and what this means, right? Like, what is the meaning of this? Which I think is really missing from the gender affirming model. There's no sense of meaning about these symptoms. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what would a psychodynamic lens help us understand about this? So when I say psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, I mean that I, you know, I come from a perspective that understands that there's more to it than just behavior so that there's something unconscious going on and that the unconscious you can think of it as you know a program that's running offline but it is running Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's talking to other offline programs that are running um and it and it does have it does it does have an impact it has an immediate impact on the individual and on the individual's surroundings. So when I say psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, that's what I mean. I mean that there is something going on underneath it all. And that something has is very complicated and very complex. And there's um it's affected by history, it's affected by culture, it's affected by the family system. It holds on to trauma when you can't when when trauma isn't sort of in the forefront of your mind, it's there, it's there in the unconscious. It, it's sort of like, it's, it's calling the shots in many ways. And if we're just looking at the behavioral piece of things, which is really important, by the way, especially in dealing with um, teens. So, you know, DBT is a fabulous thing, but I also feel like we have to look at what's underneath and we have to look at what's underneath, not just for the child, but also for the entire family. You know, so that's what I mean when I say psychodynamic, particularly my my interest is in sort of comes from the British object relations tradition um, that sees that sees a relation, a relational development that the the child develops in a relational context and how those relationships happen has a very profound impact on who this child will become and how this, this life will unfold. So what we say is that the child starts out completely dependent on the mother, on the primary caregiver for everything and there's a symbiosis there that the the mother the the child sort of if the mother is not there the child cannot survive and there's something incredibly vulnerable about that position but because of the vulnerability of that position there's also a sense of omnipotence there that you know um, the child doesn't know that the mother is a separate being doesn't know that the mother is, you know, can be willing to give the breast and can pull pull the breast away. Um, so, but the child cannot survive without this sense of omnipotence. Psychically, cannot survive the possibility that the mother will pull away. So it's very symbiotic. Um, that's where you have a lot of magical thinking. You have a lot of um, the next position that the child goes into is comes with the recognition that the mother is a separate person and has a separate mind. So there's a grieving that happens here, and there's a sort of loss 
And so the world then, because the child needs to organize the world and have it be sort of intelligible, the world goes into like a very binary kind of interpretation for them. Things are good or bad. Things are um, black or white. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining all of this because I then, want, I, I then want to go back and talk about how gender ideation works in this system and how okay. I understand it. Okay. So once, um, that's, that's called, unfor- if there's an unfortunate name given to it, it's called the paranoid schizoid position. Terrible, yeah, I terrible, know it's terrible, 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 terrible right? And you can't, you can't, you have to, you feel you have to say it, and then everybody goes, oh. Because, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and the one before that, that I just described, the state of complete symbiosis is, is, is even worse. It's called the autistic contiguous position, you know. Um, Branding is really a problem in the psychoanalytic space here, I think. It's a lot of language, you know, it's a lot of language, but you have to, you know, I always tell, like, when I talk to students and when I talk to, like, you know, people that I work with, I say, you have to hear it metaphorically you can't hear it literally yeah you have to hear all of this metaphorically um so which is how we always should have read these gender problems we we all absolutely absolutely 100 percent. so beyond and so beyond the paranoid schizoid once the development advances more say beyond seven years beyond the age of seven years so the paranoid schizoid is pretty dominant from about nine months old to about five to seven years old. So the preschool, early school years. Incidentally, isn't this when a lot of these gender dysphoric kids say, I knew when I was in seven, when I was seven years old that this was happening. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? So beyond that, after seven, they start to develop some other sense that like, huh, like that person has another mind and that person has feelings and I can affect those feelings and that person affects my feelings. And I'm like, we'll, we'll never be the same person again. Like I will never merge with another person again. And that's so depressing. Yeah. You know, the fact that like, I don't have control over another person's mind, that I can't make Susie be my friend if she I doesn't want to be. Mm. You know, that I can't, you know, that I'm not good at everything. I'm good at something. It's a terrible you confrontation know, that, with reality. That, it's awful. That my dad is never going to come back and live with us, yeah. you know? So that requires a lot of maturity yeah. um, and a lot of sort of understanding. And it requires a lot of grieving, a lot of grieving and a lot of letting go. But here's the thing, once you get past that, once you're able to grieve, and once you go into, let's say, and this goes on for a long time until like the mid-20s to the 30s. Notice how they say your brain isn't fully Mm -hmm. mature until you're Mm -hmm. 25 years old. It's because you haven't gone through the full grieving process, I believe. The full grieving of life is limited, people are not going to like me. The people I love are going to leave me. I can't make someone love me. I can't make someone believe that I'm something I'm not. Oh. You know, like truth is reality is reality. Mm-hmm. This, so this is what happens over the course of like between 
I don't know, between seven, between, let's say, 14 and 25, okay. 20, mm -hmm. 30 even. So, but once we get there, we get into this other position, it's called the transcendent position. And in the transcendent position, it's almost like being, you know, like you just don't care anymore. <laughs> it's like, you just like, yeah, some people aren't gonna like me. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm, you know, they're like the fisherman who has to mend his net, you know, even if there's like someone who's going crazy on the shore. Like, you know, if I don't mend my net, my kids aren't gonna eat. I, I agree with um, you, but I'd, I'd, I'd say that rather than 25, 30, we get it. I'd say it's about 60, 65 is when well, we move to that. <laughs> Well, that's, I'm feeling a lot of that right now as I edge very quickly towards 60 myself yeah. is like, you know, my hair is out of place. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to show up anyway. Um, this person's judging me. Big deal. Uh, you know, whatever. A liberation it's, comes in no, late middle age. It's very like, liberating. Yeah. And this is, so this is why we want to hold on to these kids until they can yeah. be at this age where they can experience this, like, I just don't have a single F to give anymore. You know, it's like I-D-G-A-F. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have to so, say, I, I want to just kind of ask something about this because my graduate program didn't include any information about object relations theory, though I know a little bit about it since leaving because I've done a lot of trying to learn on my own. Um, but I, I have to kind of raise this thing that comes up for me. This feels very much like some theory that we can apply after the fact to people. And then if it's not working, then perhaps we can say, well, something went wrong in the development, right? So like there's a part of me that is a little bit I guess, of a skeptic about a lot of things. And this feels like such an airtight, very reasonable way to understand. And there are definitely like obvious nuggets of truth in what you're saying. But part of me feels like, well, is that necessarily true for everyone? There are lots of people that never get there. Yeah. And does that mean that if only this bad thing hadn't happened to them, they would have gotten there. Or if only some kind of thwarting in their development hadn't happened, then they would have gotten there. Like, this seems like a very ideal version of what human development looks like. Well, I think that the whole the whole theory has implicit in it that this this these things can get thwarted at any point in the life course. And I'm looking at it as a clinician. Mm -hmm. So as a clinician, if I, if I understand, the other thing about, I just want to say this before going back. Um, the other thing is that this is not understood as a linear development. Okay. All of these positions, this is when they come online. They come online as we get older. But you can always go back into the other position. Like there are situations in which you might be required to go into a paranoid schizoid state because you have to manage something you have to like see things as black or white in order to be able to organize what your response is going to be yeah. similarly like when you fall in love and when you sort of like release all of your inhibitions to someone that's definitely going into a more primal autistic contiguous kind of place so that's necessary but as a clinician I'm looking, so I'm looking at the, the client, the patient who is saying, um, 
if you don't affirm my gender, mm -hmm. you're a bad person. You know? And that's very paranoid schizoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's very, you know, you versus me. That's black versus white. And so my work is, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't confront that. I can't say, well, no, that's not true. You know, I am a good person. That, that, that's completely useless mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. What's useful is to just stay with that and to just grow into that in a way. It's sort of like I'm going to become more human to this client yeah. as we go along. Yeah. And they're going to see me as, yeah, someone who has strong opinions about gender, maybe, but someone also who has a lot of, like, warmth and empathy and, like, really cares about them. Yeah. And so then they're going to get to a point of where they have to integrate this, this therapist who is opinionated and very caring. That's already an integration yes. into a, a more depressive position mm. in the room, in the therapy, in the context of the therapy. So when you say depressive here, again, just for those who don't have the language, what does depressive mean in this context? Depressive means that you move out of a black and white thinking position where, you know, so for example, you can say, you know, my, my mom isn't, isn't affirming me, but she's a really great mom. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You know, so you have to sort of grieve the fact that your mother is never going to join you on that side of the trans, yeah. you know, world. But she's also a great mom and she really loves you. And yeah. uh, to go back to the, the desistance of the parents of desisters in this context, do they, do you think... Uh, in your experience, is the the kid who's desisted, is there an appreciation for the lack of affirmation that the parents are desperate to hear that there will be? But let's say go for the truth rather than what we know everybody wants yeah. them to say. You know, the appreciation does not come directly. Yeah. If there is, it's definitely like a, you know, <laughs> backhanded. Let's go get a pedicure. Right. Yeah, let's let, let's you know like let's go get boba. It's it's not at all like you know, you know, mom. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much oh, for yeah. having held for having held the space for me. You know, none of and that. And I'm sorry none to the parents that. that I asked that, but I had to say it because we do have to know because I think a lot of parents are are hoping for that and that's no, not what's coming like, down the road. But other things are coming, and it's a liberation. You know what I mean? And it is a liberation. It's a liberation for the parents, too. Yeah. And, and I want to say, as someone who's worked with a lot of dysphoric patients, they often in therapy can acknowledge, you know, when I was young, everybody but my parents was pushing me to transition. And I understand why they didn't want me to. Yeah. But they would never say yeah. that to their parents. But I've definitely heard yeah. a pretty sober yes. and conscious recognition of the parents' choices, but there is also pain from the conflict. And that doesn't go away. Very much so. Yeah. That doesn't go away. But it's also not something your child is going to help you correct with necessarily. That's, right. that's that's your own yeah. work. Yeah. You know, your child isn't gonna be the one to say, Oh, you know, mom, I'm so sorry I hurt you you know, your child at best is going to go off and live their life and be You're happy. You're not going to get well, well played, mom. And if you can mom. be happy with that, it's, 
<laughs> yeah, none of that. I, I think, I mean, honestly, do we really, I mean, I, I didn't really appreciate my own mom until I became a mom, you know? And I kind of realized, like, you know, what a pain in the ass I might have been. I, I must have been. been. <laughs> Tell me, you, you, <laughs> we met at a conference recently and you said you had a very interesting experience with a, a gender affirmative clinician. Yes, a very important gender affirming clinician I had um, an experience, uh, an exchange with. So, you know, we were talking about the Dutch protocol and there was a panel on assessment and one of the, she was having a side conversation with another clinician that I overheard where she was kind of like pushing, you know, but you don't know, this really helps people. You know, we've helped so many kids and they're so happy now. And I said, it's not like that in America. And I can tell you as a parent that it's not like that. And initially she just, she dismissed me and she said, well, I'm a parent too, blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's not what I'm saying though, you know? So later on, interestingly enough, she came up to me and during a side conversation asked me, she said, so you're a parent, are you? And I said, I am indeed. And she said, so what, what were you trying to say? And I think I said, I think what I'm trying to say is that we're talking about two very different things. You know, I think that when you, when you guys think about the Dutch protocol and what you're all doing, I think the Dutch protocol has come up in a particular cultural context that's very different from the context that we have in the United States. And so when you take this, when you take this thing that you've developed and you put it into a different context, it doesn't work. It's and it's not working. Not that I know that there are lots of problems in the Netherlands, whether it's working or not. But I feel like, you know, I had her ear and I was going to talk. So then um, I don't I don't know if she was buying it or what. But later on, um, we kept talking and I said, so, for example, there's this great book written by Amy Shallot, who wrote, wrote a book comparing the sexual development of Dutch kids versus the sexual development of American kids and how Dutch parents are so much more permissive than American parents. You know, like Dutch parents allow the kids to have sleepovers with their boyfriends and girlfriends in their own home. And in America, this would never happen. You know, parents would be like, not under my roof, get your own place, do whatever you want if you can pay your own way. And the funny thing is, she told me that, like, it turns out that the author of that book is one of her best friends. <laughs> really? <laughs> turns out to be, like, one of her best <laughs> friends. And so I think that, like, for some reason, something clicked for her that I had actually read her best friend's oh, book. Mm. Interesting. Meaning you're a reasonable, sane person who has good taste in That's books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, and so, you know, so her, her eyes kind of immediately lit up and she was like, huh. That's really interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. And then later on, she came to me and she said, I think I'm going to have my friend like do a study on, you know, American trans kids versus Dutch trans mm. kids and see you know, like what we can learn from that. And I thought that was really interesting because to me that felt like a softening. 
Yeah. In a way, yeah. it felt a little bit like. So that's you know that's where I get I get a little hopeful, and I feel like maybe maybe. I mean, certainly not in the activist realms, yeah. right? But in the medical sort of professional realm, maybe we're starting to talk to each other. Yeah. yeah. You know, the two sides, maybe we're sort of like, maybe we're making some personal connections that, you know, that they sort of see us as like not being unreasonable and not being hysterical and, you know, not being transphobic, but rather really protecting our own kids against something that doesn't work. And maybe, uh, yeah, I agree. Maybe the Pitt book, which is out, so people can order their copies now. Um, and you're in the Pitt book, aren't you? Do you want to say just a, a mm-hmm. little tiny bit about I... your article that went, went viral and is in the Pitt book? I wrote the forward for it. But maybe that Pitt book will make yeah. some inroads into, these are really decent parents. These are not crazies. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like... Yeah. And many of us are clinicians, yeah. you know, many of us are physicians yeah. and psychologists and, you know, and many and, and most of us are really like, uh, until this point, we're very progressive thinking, you know, um, none of us are, I don't know, we're, we're all quite reasonable and we all love our kids. Yeah. Um, Tell us about your article. So the pit book, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the article. Um, it was the it was the essay to my daughter's therapist. You were wrong, and I wrote it exactly two years ago. I think that I submitted that essay, and it uh, I didn't know this, but apparently it was the first piece that went viral, um, and really got pit on the map. And I'm I'm kind of blown away by that because really I was just telling my story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um yeah it is in the book um and in that story it talks about my choice of taking my daughter out of the country um what's become i don't think i think it's erroneous to sort of call it the nuclear option because honestly at that point if i didn't feel like she could she could sort of do what she did when we went abroad I, I, it wouldn't have no, worked. I want to touch on this because point. this is so important. Yeah. And I, I think I even mentioned this in our last conversation. You had thrown out the idea of traveling to her at one point in time and she said no. And then you waited for yeah. a long time and you asked her again and she was thrilled. So I just want people yeah. to yeah. understand yeah. because sometimes our, our position about travel is misconstrued as like forcing a child to leave their... No, we're yeah. talking about giving a child the opportunity to do something interesting that he or she really wants to do that could be fulfilling and meaningful and help them expand their sense of self and their character. So we, that's such a good point. So thank you for raising that. The other thing, the other thing is I think that parents have also have got, and I mean, I can't blame them. You know, they want to be done with this already. They have this like wish or hope that like, there's this one thing they can do that's going to bring their child to desist you know like if i take them and i i'm sure i was in that kind of a mindset too you know like if i just do this maybe it'll work and it's like it's like the same thing as like maybe if i just sit her down and do an Mm -hmm. intervention you know maybe she won't or if i if i send her articles about this maybe she won't go through with medicalization or maybe if i 
you know, and it's sort of, to me, that's like missing the real task. The real task isn't finding that one thing. The real task is changing. So is changing the relationship. How? Somehow. I mean, if, if you had a parent that you were working with and they were trying to understand mm -hmm. what's going on, what advice can you give parents about how do you know what to change about your relationship? How do you know what you're supposed to be doing differently? It's already what the, what the kid is complaining about, you know, like my, my, my mom insists, my mom checks my grades every day, you know, stop checking her grades, you know, even something like, you know, my mom reads to me. My, my mom still reads to me every night. Stop doing it. You know, like, tell, have you asked your mom not to? Mm. Oh, that's a mm -hmm. good idea. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's something there. There's like some kind of orthodoxy in the home that the child is like ramming against. The saying, I don't know how to make you stop doing this, but I'm going to create this big thing. And finally, hopefully you're going to, you're going to change. Something is going to change about and you because I can't, I can't, this is and not for good. Some, some kids I've worked with, I've noticed their ability to commute, to figure out themselves what it is they're saying wrong, no to mm -hmm. it, it. It's all, they don't, they've childed into gender and they're not mm -hmm. as clear as where you are with, 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 maybe with your kid. It's much more, they're, they, they're acting as if it's all fine. And then it's only quite, deep into the relationship I realize oh no they're actually very angry about certain things that you wouldn't have noticed at the mm -hmm. beginning if you follow me that they come across kind of things yeah. so things like you know like I mean we all know the mom who when the when the kid goes to the mom with a problem the mom somehow has an even bigger problem yeah. you know um the 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 fact that the kid has a problem creates an even bigger problem for the mom and so the the mom now is hysterical and the mom is like you know falling apart and can't have like a calm response to mm -hmm. this child mm -hmm. you know yeah. and so this is exactly the time when you know you mom have to change the way you respond to crises oh that you're like when your child brings you something and actually like does you the yeah, favor of telling you, you I don't like this about our relationship yeah. you know and if you can't hear that you know then then I, I don't know I don't know what else to do and as well as that the you pressure know? which you and I have experienced Maggie which is the well you have it easy compared to my childhood. So uh, any ha unhappiness you're feeling yeah. is frankly, I can one up right. it from when I was your age. That's right. And that really That's right. quenches the kids kind of existence. Yeah. And it's, it's a horrible thing to impose on a kid's shoulders. Yeah. Like your unhappiness is only lightweight. I was facing something much worse. Get over it. If, if that's your general yeah. tone, yeah. which <laughs> guilty yeah. you know what I mean so I'm, I'm not saying it in a judgmental oh, way but it, it's, yeah. I've noticed it I definitely noticed it with with teenagers and it's, it's a pressure on them that, they should be happy yeah the other thing speaking of pressure is the other thing I want to really tell parents is like find a way to hold this lightly you know like find a way yeah. to like find humor in it like don't don't Turn it into a funeral every totally, single day. Totally, totally. This is so important. You know, just yeah. 
don't turn it into like a, you know, like one kid said to me, you know, I want this to be a fun thing. I don't want it to be like, you know, yeah. it's like I want it to be fun that I dress this yeah. way. And the yeah, pair just like... I don't want it to be like this. Yeah. You know, every time my mom sees me wearing, you know, a hoodie, she like falls yeah. apart. And it's like, and I'm I like, and I'm thinking about, you know, the time when my daughter, long after her desistance, decided to change to color her hair purple, and I went yeah, into a panic state, going like, here we go again. Yeah. When in fact that wasn't it at all. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? It's like, but that's trauma, you know? I, I, I wanted to share a story. I have a really good friend who, um, her daughter at the time was 12, and she never really went down the rabbit hole, maybe partially because of how my friend very cleverly responded. Oh, yeah. But, you know, one day her daughter, no gender dysphoria as a kid, said, um, Mom, I, I don't think I'm a girl. And so she sat her down, they had a conversation. She said, do you think you're a boy? And she said, maybe. And she said, do you want a penis? And she said, no. And she said, do you want me to use different pronouns? And she said, I don't know. And she, my friend said, well, okay, we'll give it a couple days and see how it goes. So she turned it into kind of like this big charade. And she said, hey, bro, are you ready for <laughs> basketball today? And her daughter was like, uh, and she said, hey, dude, your dinner's ready. Like she turned the whole thing into a, kind of a fun, playful thing. And she wasn't being, you know, right. She wasn't taking it too seriously. She just said, okay, you're 12. You know, you want me to call you a boy? Okay, you know, you and your brother come to dinner. Like, did you, you know, stand to pee? Like, she kind of turned the whole thing into something light. And the daughter, would they would kind of laugh about it together. And then eventually her daughter said, it's fine, mommy. It's not a big deal. I don't, I don't think I'm a boy. And it, like, lasted yeah. a week, something like that. Yeah. So two pieces, two comments on that. Your friend knew her yeah. very well. And she Inside knew out. she could do that yeah. with her kid. She knew she kind of had a sense of like what her kid was going to be able to tolerate. Another 12 year old might have gone completely, totally. you know, bat crap yes. over, yeah. you know, so your friend knew her kid. That's the one thing I forgot. Well, I can think of something was. while you're thinking of the other thing, because it reminds me, <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, when, you know, obviously I'm gender gender and my husband Henry is often too. And um, just on a crazy whim, my, my, my feminine daughter, who was always feminine, haven't been a very masculine kid. I, I kind of encouraged a certain femininity in her when she was two or three or else it was natural. I'll never know. But Certainly that is the way it's gone. And when she was 12, it was during COVID years, and she hopped up, we were all watching telly, she hopped up suddenly and she kind of put her hair under as if she looked gorgeous in a cap. I said, I think I'll be a boy. <laughs> and me and Henry just looked at each other like, <laughs> like this kind of freakish horror film look. Just we shot at each other across the room. And she yeah. hopped around like I'm a boy. Yeah. Just, I suppose it was an hour or whatever. And uh, we were like, yeah, no, <laughs> cut that, not a chance. We got it. We were funny about it, but we said, yeah, 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 hilarious, not a chance yet. Get over that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Again, so I thought no, of the. I, I can I just say second. again, knowing the yeah. kid It's like, yeah, yeah, you're you're not gonna play that game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hilarious, hilarious. Yeah, sit down. Let's watch the film. <laughs> now I know my kid, and I knew what I was doing, and I knew where it was going. But I remember that look. Me and Henry just looked at each other like, what? That is this how it begins <laughs> was like just emanating in the room. Sorry, tell us your thing, Maggie. Yeah. Yeah. My my second thing is that, you know, I, I'm going to venture to guess that your friend's daughter 
probably doesn't have other serious mental Correct. health comorbidities. She's very well. She's a, right. a wonderful, I mean, she's a sensitive right. kid, right. but she's got a lot of friends. She's doing awesome in school. And their relationship is yeah. like unbelievably tight. So yeah, yeah, totally. So those are the two, those are the 100%. two things. So which then, which then brings me to say that when we're treating a kid yeah. who has gender dysphoria, who's present, who's presenting with this, the, the two things that we're doing is we're saying to the parent, know your kid and connect with your kid. And the other thing we're saying is let's see what the comorbidities are and let's treat those yes. as well. So that we can get to a point where the mom can say, all right, bro, mm -hmm. you know, and, and hold it lightly, you know, um, that you can't always sort of yeah. do that. It's not in every situation that that's going to, you know, um, and frankly, a lot of these kids do have lots of comorbidities. Yeah. And what often happens, which is so different from my friend's story, is that these kids are dealing with something that feels very dark and heavy. And they're really in a difficult place. Yes. And so when they come tearfully yeah. crying, begging their parents yeah, to call them yeah, a boy, yeah, yeah. it feels so much more monumental and serious rather than my friend's daughter, who was clearly like reading something on TikTok and she thought she'd kind of play around with it in yes. a light way. So I think, I mean, that's why yeah. we, we say parents have to know their kid. And we do believe that in many cases, parents know their kid best. But I, I want to ask you a question as we kind of round out. You know, I have noticed that the parental anxiety is so high and it's contextually completely understandable because their kids are going through this really dark place. Yeah. They're being undermined by doctors and therapists. Mm -hmm. All of this has come out of the blue. They're really mm -hmm. scared about medicalization. Mm -hmm. So parental anxiety is high. And when parental anxiety is high, it's also very hard to connect in a genuine way with your child, which is precisely like what we're trying to help parents do. So do you have any thoughts or advice for parents who are simultaneously anxious? They're trying to bond with their child. They're trying to help the child separate. And in some ways, all of these things feel like they don't go together well. So what, what do you have to say about that? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, self-care is so important. And this is something that like, you know, parents will often ask me, like, what can I, is there anything I can do, you know? And I'll tell them like, yeah. go take a walk is what you can do. You know, go have coffee with a friend is what you can do. Go play, I don't know, go play mm -hmm. some tennis. Go do things that feel good to you because this is the long haul. This is not going to go away fast and you're gonna have to take care of yourself, you know? That's the one thing I say. The other thing, I mean, if at all possible, very often I feel like the, the primary caregiver does need to be in therapy. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I know that that's a very difficult thing because, you know, even therapy for the kid is probably really expensive. But I really feel like the, the, the mom, in most cases, like I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll have three or four sessions with a kid and like at the end of the fourth session i'm like Me this too. mom needs therapy this mom really needs to get in there and do her like she needs support she needs like someone that she can you know sort of mm -hmm. empty out to mm -hmm. um because otherwise it's all going to get dumped into the relationship with the child 
you know, when this was going on with my kid, I was in therapy twice a week, you know, um, yeah. and for good or for bad, it, it I, I needed yeah. to do that. And I needed to do it for my kid. You know, I needed to like have someone else support me. So if that's what you need to do, then that's what you should do. Um, so that's, that's really it. I think self-care is really important. Self-care, physical self-care, mental self-care, relational self-care, all of those things. You know, you need, if you're not well, you can't help your child yeah. get well. Yeah. It's so fundamental, but it's, that's, I often say, you know, this gender thing comes into the family and completely throws off everybody's sense of like what to do in a crisis because it's, it doesn't feel normal. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you can rely on kind of the, other things that you would otherwise do if there was an issue. And so this it's so important to just talk about these foundations. I mean, we talk about this in the book. There's so much about parental self-care and parents not losing themselves in the process because that's not going to help anybody. It's, and it's yeah. so hard. It's so hard to care for yourself when your child is in a crisis mm -hmm. like this. It is so, it's it's almost like, you know, telling the mom, you know, nap when your kid naps. It's like, I mean, nap. <laughs> I can't, I can't yeah. nap. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, so that's, that's really important. I think self-care and, and in many cases, like, you know, rather than like, if you can't find a therapist for your child, if you can't, you know, there certainly there aren't enough there non-affirming therapists to go around unfortunately but get a therapist yeah. for yourself go go to get up you know, and like find if you a, can't, a therapist well, who the, gets lots of places now i i don't think it's quite the desert it used yeah. to be there's get it there's cta critical therapy antidote mm -hmm. there's therapists mm -hmm. there's beyond mm -hmm. trans we yeah. have beyond mm -hmm. trans.org there's a list of over 80 therapists on that so there are therapists but out also there like if you're but also, in terms of finding a therapist, I find that, you know, there's lots you can know about a therapist just by knowing about when they were trained and how they were trained. You know, if you have, if you find a therapist that's already in her 50s and 60s, you know that her training was before this sort of gender critical theory explosion. So you, you might find better rapport with someone yeah. like that. Especially be more thoughtful and has more and experience. especially if they're independent as opposed to working in a clinic or a, a larger center yeah. right yeah exactly. i remember exactly so yeah. there are ways i remember just to ways. add i know we're finishing up but i remember just to add i i think it happen. it can happen in all walks of life i remember my kids were being faced with something really quite difficult once and i had a therapist i got myself a therapist because i knew i would be insane around my kids if I didn't have an opportunity to just process this, well, they were able to handle it as such, but I definitely needed it because I was just going to go mad. I think we really do feel the pain of our children very, very deeply. And it's very generous to realise I'm holding it too tight. My emotions are too high. I need somewhere to, to process that. Um, rather than presuming straight away it's the kid who needs the therapy. I just don't think that's naturally yeah a hundred percent yeah that's great well maggie we are so glad that you are back on um i know that of course this is a pseudonym as as i remember from our last episode a lot of people contacted us wanting to get in touch with you so if people listen to this and, and would like to either work with you or just kind of get in touch 
is it okay if we put you in contact yeah. with them kind of in your other email and your other yeah. name? Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can, um, you can just, I, I'm very responsive when people reach okay. out to me. This is something that the people who work with me know. So if they, if they, if they reach out to me through you, yeah. um, I will get, just get, give me their info and I will get that in touch great. with them. So what we're going to do, Maggie, is we're going to keep you yeah. for a few more moments. We're going to have our dinner party conversations okay. where we ask you to tell us how okay. do we talk about gender IRL with people in life. But uh, at this point, we will say yeah. goodbye to our general audience. And then if anyone wants to hear our dinner party conversation, they can join us in our listener community. So thank you. Thanks, Becky. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.